In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. Support. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. There has long been debates on the inclusion of social and emotional skills in the school curriculum. Some see life skills and competencies as the responsibility of parents and carers, while others advocate for education of the whole child. The pressures of needing to adhere to curriculums and prepare for standardised testing has meant educators have had to be creative in their ability to meet the different learning and social needs of their students. But is this possible or are we asking too much of our teachers? Today we speak with Professor Morris Elias, who works at the Department of Psychology at the Rutgers School of Arts and Science in Piscataway, New Jersey. Over several years, Professor Elias has worked in the field of prevention, school-based preventative intervention and social competence promotion. He was integral in setting up the Rutgers Social, Emotional and Character Development Lab. The lab is dedicated to conducting action research in public, private and religious school settings for the purpose of building children's skills for facing the tests of life and not a life of tests. Professor Elias is the author of several books, including Promoting Social and Emotional Learning, Guidelines for Educators and The Other Side of the Report Card, Assessing Students' Social, Emotional and Character Development. Professor Elias is interviewed by my colleague, Dr Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this informative and inspiring. Maurice, thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Um, So we might just start um, by perhaps um, you telling us a little bit about your background and what brought you to your work with um, social emotional development and um, learning. My training is actually as a clinical psychologist and I of course noticed in the work that I've done primarily with children and families the importance of social and emotional factors in everything that happens. Um, And I found myself being drawn more toward the prevention side of things. Uh, I found myself very interested in what happens when kids are in school. Uh, This is where kids spend such a huge proportion of their lives. And it seemed to me that a lot of both the difficulties that kids were encountering as well as the roots to making their lives better took place in schools. And so I began to devote my career, uh, and this is about 40 years ago, to starting to work directly in schools, uh, understand how they promoted kids' social and emotional needs, and, uh, and to see what we could do for kids at all levels. Uh, my, my beginning work was actually with kids who had uh, severe behavioral and emotional difficulties. Um, again, these are kids for whom uh, their social and emotional competencies are so critical. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was just curious, it sounds like you've been doing this for a very long time, but uh, was there a, a sort of particular student or a, or a particular incident that kind of got you really interested in the area or got you thinking, all right, there might be something here <laughs> worthwhile pursuing? I would say the the formative experience was when I was doing a practicum placement during my training in graduate school. And, you know, when you're a student, sometimes you, you, you're invisible. And so I would sit in the staff room and no one would notice me or talk to me, but I could hear everything they were saying. It was like I had a, a Harry Potter cloak of invisibility. Um, and, and, and everyone was complaining about, well, if only the school would do this, and if only the school would do that, and if only the school would have been doing this. And everything they were saying, I said to myself, well, there's no reason why these things can't happen. And then as I was seeing clinical cases, uh, it also became clear to me how often kids were being uh, ill-served by what was happening in their schools and, and, of course, sometimes in their homes and communities. So it was really that experience um, that, that drew me much more toward the, uh, the prevention side and also the, the side of realizing how strengthening schools would be such an important uh, part of kids' lives. Yeah, that's a great story. So just stepping back, uh, how would you define social-emotional skills and competencies, and why do you think they're important for teachers um, and schools to be on top of? You know, I view social and emotional competencies uh, a lot like uh, oxygen. Uh, they are essential for life. We are social beings. Uh, virtually everything we do involves other people. Um, we are not uh, islands of independence. And so therefore, we really do uh, exercise our social and emotional skills from the moment we're born, uh, from, from the moment uh, kids learn how to cry to get their parents' attention, all the way through to the end of life, uh, our ability to interact with other people, manage and recognize our emotions, our ability to uh, work in groups, uh, our ability to be good problem solvers. Um, these are things that are essential parts of being a human. And so to me, it's like oxygen. Um, you know, one analogy that I like to talk about is um, like reading. I, I, of, of the many academic skills that are important, I think we would agree that if you don't know how to read, uh, your life is going to be far more difficult than otherwise. And, and my analogy to that is that if you don't know how to read people, your life is going to be far more difficult than it otherwise could be. So I view social and emotional competencies as uh, absolutely integral to human and life success. Yeah, I, I love that kind of idea of being able to read people. I think I think that's such a great kind of idea to hold in mind. Um, I was going to come to this later, but I might talk to you about it now. So for some of the teachers listening, um, and, and we hear this a lot in our training and, and, and through our courses, is people saying, you know, when did this become the work of teachers? Shouldn't this be the work of parents and families? And, and somehow that it's some sort of sign of the degeneration of society. Well, well, how would you respond? to people like that and, um, and why kind of SEL sits sort of um, squarely uh, with schools and educators? 
You know, it, it's a very complicated question, but uh, I think if we, we all reflect back on the teachers that we had, that we valued most, that were most influential on us growing up, uh, we will conclude that it was the social and emotional uh, aspect of those teachers that made the difference to us. Um, you know, when I, when I think about, and when we think about why we go into education, the answer is typically not to help kids bubble in uh, Scantron sheets or, uh, uh, or, or somehow, uh, you know, to get test scores uh, perfect. Uh, I think we go into education because we want to touch children. We want to touch their hearts, touch their souls, and, and make their lives better. And in order to do that, we, we have to address their social and emotional well-being. Uh, now, there are folks who may not feel that way. And, uh, you know, I, I quite honestly feel badly for their students. But it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. Uh, we can improve uh, our students' academic competencies and skills while not losing sight of the, the, the human element that will um, enable them to use their skills for good. Uh, you know, maybe we'll talk more about this later, but, but one of the things that we've done in our most recent work is really to understand that, uh, that skills and virtues need to be considered together in the work that we do. That, uh, that, our, that our work as educators is not values neutral. And, uh, and in fact, we, we only want to have smart kids who want to do good. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, a former uh, president of the United States, uh, once said that to educate uh, someone in mind, but not in morals, is to create a menace to society. Yeah, that's correct. And I think that I think that's a good quote. So, so I I tell people uh, also. Let, let me just uh, address this issue on a very pragmatic and selfish level. So, you know, in in the United States, our typical school year is 180 school days, and uh, kids are spending maybe six or seven of those hours in school, and with teachers. Um, Children spend, uh, at least in some statistics I've seen, an, an average of maybe, maybe an hour a day interacting with their parents. So I ask the question, so who's most invested in kids being decent, pleasant uh, companions? And actually, it should be teachers. Um, if I'm going to spend 180 school days with you, I don't need you to be miserable. And if the parents are not doing as much of this as we would like them to do, the answer is not to say parents do more. The answer is to say, what can I do? And, um, and what we find in the data is that as kids, as you develop the kids' social and emotional skills in the classroom, your instructional time increases. You have a more a positive atmosphere for deeper discussion. You get better listening. You get better questioning. You get better thinking. So, um, so teachers should not be feeling that somehow uh, parents have the province for creating decent human beings. Uh, it's a collective enterprise. Um, but but as, I, as I tell some school administrators, uh, even if you hate children, hate them and only want high test scores, 
you should still be interested in their social and emotional competence because if they don't have that, uh, it's very hard for them to really excel academically. Mm. And that's, that's such a powerful argument, isn't it? And especially having research and data to back that up. Um, it really speaks to, you know, some of those barriers around teachers raising concerns about there being standardized testing and national curriculums and there being not enough time for this. Um, but what in fact you're saying is that focusing on this actually um, kind of improves on their ability to access and, you know, have successful experience of learning some of these things. Right. But, but at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that that this is not a, a, a meaningful part of most teachers' training and preparation. Yeah. So uh, we can't believe and think that, okay, well, just because it's important, uh, then you can just do it. Uh, that's not the case. Teachers need guidance and support in order to do this. Not, not tremendous, um, because teachers obviously know kids. They, they know something about child development. They have wonderful pedagogical techniques. Um, how to mobilize all that in the service of social and emotional skill learning uh, and building positive uh, character, um, I mean, takes a little bit. It takes, uh, it takes, it takes support uh, and some resources. Uh, so I don't, I don't want folks to think that somehow uh, they, they, they should just do it. But, but it is something that taking the time to do and learn uh, has tremendous payoffs. Yeah, and, and, and I was thinking about that idea of education not being values neutral. And I, I, it's such a, it's, you know, it's kind of a set of lots of uh, light bulbs for me because I, I guess in a way that if, if we're not explicit about why it is that we're doing what we're doing, from a teacher's point of view, there's a risk of wearing away from, you know, keeping the whole, the, the student in the center of why, you know, we provide an education, you know, and it's not just that there are test scores, but in fact that there are, complete human beings but from the students point of view it, it makes them less suspicious of the teachers intentions or the school's intentions towards them I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit about being you know explicit about your values and the impact that has on the students absolutely uh, you know I, I think there are several elements to this so Let's just take the particular case of, uh, of the work that we are focusing on now. In the past bunch of years, we've been focusing on uh, school environments, uh, urban, uh, largely uh, ch children of color, so-called um, poor kids. Uh, and, and the approach that we've taken has, is called trauma-informed uh, because these kids have indeed experienced trauma. Uh, many of them have experienced severe family trauma. Poverty is itself a chronic uh, source of trauma. Uh, some of these kids have experienced uh, severe violence. They have parents who are incarcerated. Um, th there's a whole litany of things. So, uh, so we have found that when these kids walk into the school building, they are not first interested in finding out about the great books. Uh, they are not first interested in hearing about the uh, ancient history of something or, or other. Uh, they are looking to walk into an environment in which they are welcomed, in which they are valued, in which they are cherished. And so we have come to see that the concept of positive purpose uh, is a, an essential anchor 
in working with trauma-informed kids. Because when you're trauma-informed, it's as if your moorings have been ripped away. It's as if the, the ground under your feet is not stable. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the fact that, that when you go home, you don't know what's going to happen, but you suspect it's not going to be good. So then when you come into the school, if you also don't know what's going to happen and you've come to expect it's not going to be good, uh, this leaves you in a very bad place. So we want our kids to feel that they come to a school where their sense of positive purpose is recognized, valued, and supported. Now, of course, you support positive purpose in part by building kids' uh, social and emotional competencies. But, but then the question is, toward what ends? So we've identified five uh, virtues that we believe are essential for trauma-informed education. Uh, and, uh, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to just talk briefly about those five. That sounds great, yep. Okay, so, so the first one uh, I would talk about is uh, optimistic future-mindedness. We've got a lot of kids who've lived in a trauma context and who are worried about the fact that another trauma is going to happen. Or they're in a context of chronic trauma, like poverty, and have no sense that things are going to get better. When we've done surveys of some of these kids, uh, we found in one middle school that we work with that 50% uh, of the kids, when you ask them, said that they don't believe they're going to have a healthy, happy life in the future. If I don't believe I'm going to have a healthy, happy life in the future, I'm not going to be too motivated to learn calculus uh, or, uh, or chemistry uh, or much of anything else. So we have to help kids develop this optimistic future mindedness. This is more than just a growth mindset. Yeah. Uh, this is getting to see themselves in the future in a positive way. And, and that's not a simple thing, but, but important. Uh, a second skill is um, compassionate forgiveness and gratitude. So um, we got a lot of kids that we work with who've had bad things happen to them in their life, and they blame people for it. And I don't blame them for blaming people for it. But they hold grudges. And, and holding a grudge is the surest way of uh, keeping yourself in, in the same situation you're in. I mean, we all know this. So compassionate forgiveness and gratitude is about giving the kids the virtue of being able to accept what's happened, as bad as it is, and to be able to move on. If our kids can't move on, then they sit in our classes uh, consumed, in a way, uh, with thoughts of revenge and, oh, poor me. And while all that may be true and legitimate, it is also incredibly unhelpful. So, uh, so we need to teach our kids about forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, the power of gratitude to open up their hearts a little bit. Um, and, and then we have to engage them in helpful generosity. That's the third virtue. So it may seem paradoxical, but we have found that a lot of our trauma-informed kids come to feel that they have very little value. 
And they are also the recipients of a lot of remediation. And I don't know about you, but I know when I get up in the morning, I don't open up my window, take a deep breath of fresh air and say, oh, I can't wait to have remediation experiences today. <laughs> this, this, this is not what I'm looking forward to, but this is the life of many of our kids. Um, so, so we ask the question, how do we help our kids feel generous? How do we help them um, feel that they have something to offer? When they feel they have something to offer, then they have motivation to learn and motivation to improve their social and emotional skills as well as their academic knowledge. So helpful generosity is another very essential virtue. Um, two more. The fourth one is constructive creativity. Uh, this is because our kids uh, who are trauma-informed need to be able to think out of the box. Um, and in fact, you know, when you look to the future, the future belongs to the creative thinkers. The future belongs to the innovators. Our kids are not going to catch up, especially some of our kids in urban environments. Um, they're not going to catch up in their test scores in part because test scores are, are often rigged against them. Um, so we need them to be thinking creatively. We need to nurture their creativity. We need them to develop that sense that, you know, I may not have these traditional skills, but I have something to offer. And going along with that is the fifth and final one of these virtues, uh, that of uh, responsible diligence. So this is not simply grit. Um, this is more than grit. Responsible diligence is the idea that that our kids are going to have and set goals and work toward them, even when they have setbacks. But you know, but but it's not disconnected from them having positive goals. We want our kids to be responsibly diligent. The sad truth is, uh, and and I'm I'm sure many listeners know this uh, implicitly, is that our troubled kids often have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Yeah. This is sad, this is unfair, but it's the reality. And so if our kids are not imbued with a sense of responsible diligence, if they're not imbued with the, uh, with the encouragement to keep going in spite of difficulty, uh, they will probably um, not persist. And, and we need them to be able to do that. So, uh, so from our perspective, virtues... Uh, and not just one virtue, but a set of virtues are, are needed for kids to achieve a positive purpose. And, and really, it serves as the motivation for them to develop their skills. Um, and this is particularly the case with kids who are involved in both acute and, uh, and chronic uh, forms of trauma. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, um, and it's such a useful framework, I think. And and it makes I'm really interested to understand um, how this gets taught and what this looks like practically, because I, I feel like one of the dilemmas often we have is schools and teachers who often overly accommodate for the difficulties of the young people and the students, where they 
not having very many challenging kind of learning experiences or it goes the other way where they have kind of unrealistically high expectations and it becomes feels really punitive so what how, how does this um look like in the classroom uh morris and how, how does um and i'm curious on what influence that has on kind of disciplinary action as well well, you know, I, I think I think it is important to note that that when it happens at the level of the school, it makes it easier to happen at the level of the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, it it's it it this links back to the issue of bullying, if you don't mind me making that connection, no. where we expect individual students to somehow uh, stand up for the bully uh, for bullying when they see it, mm -hmm. and you know. This is an unrealistic expectation uh, unless it's the norm, unless we create a whole school that is uh, designed to be a supportive learning organization. When that happens, then it's easier for the classroom to reflect those norms. When that doesn't happen, then the classroom is in essence creating a, a normative island that becomes a little harder to sustain not impossible not at all impossible but but all learning is cumulative so when i go from classroom to classroom grade level to grade level where there's a concern for my social and emotional competencies there is an expectation that i have value and i have virtues and and i can be moved along in all of those so when all that's happening Boy, it makes it a lot easier for the individual classroom teacher in any given year because you know what you're getting, you know where you're going, it's great. Um, for the individual teacher, I think the key is to um, be very clear about the, the positive, supportive classroom norms and identifying and exercising the student's strengths. I think that that's where the disconnect is. I think this is where we have uh, two, the, the high expectations are not inappropriate, but the problem is that we set high expectations for the areas where kids um, are weakest. Yeah. And, and that's not by itself helpful. And then when we're lenient uh, in the areas where the kids are weakest, um, that's not helpful because we need our kids to excel. So working through the strengths of our kids allows us to have areas where we set high expectations uh, so that kids can be, feel competent. And then when they feel competent, they can take on the challenges of the areas where they're not so good. Um, and similarly, uh, to have the low expectations of the kids uh, that doesn't particularly do them any favors but we do have to recognize that we can't expect them to go from point A to point Z without all the intervening steps. So we have to really be thoughtful about uh, how we scaffold our expectations for the kids. Um, you know, part of this is the incentive systems that, uh, that our teachers have to operate under, where sometimes they feel, and not inappropriately, that they're being asked to do miracles, yeah. that they're being asked to um, move children along in literally developmentally impossible ways. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, uh, I like to think of uh, uh, education as like a relay race, 
where the key to success is not just how fast each person runs, but how well they pass the baton. And, and if you don't pass the baton successfully every time, you will not win the race no matter how fast each person is. Mm. And, and the same thing is true in education. Yeah. So, um, so, so for the teachers, it'll be easier when the school has a climate that's positive mm. and supportive and reflective of the same values that they would like to uh, have inculcated within their individual classrooms. Now, um, there are a lot of examples of this. Uh, in the United States, there's a program called National Schools of Character, mm -hmm. where there's a systematic process for identifying and recognizing uh, schools of this kind. Um, the organization uh, character.org um, uh, has uh, on their website uh, links and examples to many of these schools of character. Uh, they are now expanding this to be an international program, but that's in its earliest stages. So there are examples uh, that uh, that folks can see, um, and I'm I am certain in because in any country I've ever been to, there are schools that people say, "God, that's a great school," and when you go into one of those schools, you feel the climate, you feel the warmth, you feel the support, you feel the camaraderie. And if you begin to then analyze it, you'll see that they are attending to the kids' uh, virtues, their character, and their social and emotional competencies. Uh, they may not be doing it, you know, with an explicit curriculum, but when you begin to uh, take out the uh, magnifying glass, you, you, you see all the signs that are there. Yeah, and, and it is often about values and how they kind of prioritize things really, isn't it? And, and that's what kind of uh, comes out in how people interact with each other and the climate. Um, I just had a couple of other questions um, uh, and, and then we'll kind of uh, wrap up to the end. Um, I was really curious about this idea you were talking about in terms of expectations of students and, um, you know, being able to differentiate your expectations. And that's that's often quite a... I feel like someone who's not a teacher, quite a complex kind of skill. I was curious about your ideas around how you can assess and differentiate those social emotional skills across a group of students in a class. Right. So um, <clears throat> this is a this is a fascinating issue. Uh, we've actually, my colleagues and I actually have a, a book on this topic, assess, assessing social and emotional and character development. Uh, it's not a simple thing, and yet, and yet, we expect teachers to do this all the time. Yeah. Anytime teachers uh, assign report card grades, implicitly or explicitly, they are including information about the kids' social and emotional competencies. This is a reason why uh, the data show that long-term success is predicted better by report card grades than by test scores. Mm. Because the report card grades implicitly have in it things about the kind of person a kid is. And, and sometimes it's explicit. So, I mean, I would submit that if I spent, uh, you know, uh, an hour a day with you if I had a class, let's say I'm a, a middle school teacher or high school teacher and I've got a kid 
that I see an hour a day, uh, or I'm an elementary school teacher and I've got kids I see maybe five hours a day, uh, how can I not learn about your social and emotional skills? So if we give teachers a template that breaks down social and emotional skills for them, um, including, you know, the basic areas uh, of, uh, of uh, emotion recognition, uh, self-control, emotion management, awareness of others, empathy, problem solving, ability to work in groups. Um, I mean, if we broke that down developmentally, and those, those uh, breakdowns do exist, um, and teachers had them, and they were alerted to them, they would indeed be able to develop nuances uh, for the kids, and they would be able to see uh, what do my what do these particular kids really need to be working on? And uh, you know, the teaching teachers are fantastic. Teachers are fantastic because they get to know the kids, and they make differentiations on many, many, many levels. The only reason that they don't make more clear and explicit social and emotional differentiations is because they almost never have a framework for it. And given a framework for it, they, they, they can do it. But they're already doing it implicitly. You know, when, when teachers form groups of kids in, in you know, work groups, they're very often to think, oh, this kid gets along well. I don't want to have these kids in the group because these kids never listen to anybody. You need to have a kid who listens. You need to have a kid who cooperates. So we need a helpful kid with these other kids. I've got an inclusion class, so I'm going to have some of my kids with the best social skills paired up with some of my kids who have fewer social skills. Teachers are doing this stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. They just need a little more guidance and support. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and uh, this idea of uh, inclusion as well, because we often hear that the most problematic students sort of demand so much of time and energy of the teachers and the school. I was curious about your thoughts just about that, that, you know, this idea of being able to be inclusive as much as you can is actually beneficial for everyone. Um, did you have any thoughts about that, particularly for the kids who we need to be trauma-informed for? Oh. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, there, is a, there is a saying that uh, is used in some schools, uh, in essence, that, that we are all responsible for each other. And, uh, and I believe that. And I, I believe that that is a value uh, and a virtue. So if we begin with that assumption, then I, if I have kids coming into my class who are problems, or having problems, then I need to be uh, having conversations with my kids about how do we help each other here. Mm. And, and this is where the strength part comes in. I don't want kids coming in who are included to, to somehow uh, be seen as, the, as a deficit. Mm. Um, I have a, a very close colleague, Timothy Shriver, who works with uh, International Special Olympics. Uh, in fact, he's the CEO. And, and, uh, and Tim Shriver says that we need to not use the term disabilities. We need to use the term different abilities. And so every child has different abilities. And every child has things they're not so good at. And they have things that they're good at. So an included child has that. And that needs to be part of the conversation when that kid comes in. Uh, I work with a program in Highland Park, New Jersey, uh, where they had a, 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 an influx of children who are diagnosed on the autistic spectrum. And what they did was they trained the students in the mainstream, so to speak, 
in autism. They helped the, 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 the classes understand what is autism, what are the symptoms, when kids are having difficulty, when kids are doing self-stim or kids are doing repetitive talking or kids are not talking, uh, what's all that about? And how do we support them? And for years, they've had an exemplary and an award-winning uh, program. It's actually summarized in an article in the journal Phi Delta Kappen uh, called To Reach for the Stars. Uh, written by Trina Epstein. Mm -hmm. and, and that article talks about the fact that um, inclusion is, is the key word. And the question is, how do we all include one another, um, regardless of circumstances? So when kids have experienced a personal life trauma, uh, that's something that people need to know about and talk about. When there's community-wide trauma and it's all shared, um, then in a way that, uh, quote unquote, is easier because we're all included in that trauma. But regardless, the point is, how do we provide a safe, supportive, caring, and helpful environment for everyone that walks in that door in our classroom? Uh, and how do we see every one of those folks as a potential asset to what we're doing? And not a, uh, quote unquote, liability. Not someone who's going to take away my instructional time. Because if that's how you treat me, I'm going to take away your instructional time because that's my way of getting your attention. But if you're attending to me because of my competencies and you're using my assets in the classroom, I'm not going to cause you too much trouble. Yeah. That's, the, that's behind the whole helpful generosity thing. Yeah. As we make people more helpfully generous, they will exhibit fewer behavior problems. Yeah, and that that's is, the link to the discipline. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. So many, so many really valuable pieces of information there. Um, I, I was wondering what you were currently curious about um, in your work. Uh, I know you spoke about the trauma informed program. Were there other things you were curious about at the moment? Well, one of the things that we've uh, started is the Academy for Social and Emotional Learning in Schools. Uh, it's at uh, SEL in schools, one word, selinschools.org. We've done this for the reasons I alluded to earlier, uh, which is that many teachers want to get better in these things, but don't have places to go. So the academy is an online certificate program where teachers uh, and counselors, psychologists, social workers, uh, all student support services providers can come to develop their expertise in, uh, in delivering social and emotional uh, and character development to their classrooms, as well as building a positive uh, classroom culture and climate. Uh, we feel that that's an important resource. We do have uh, some folks who have uh, registered from Australia, uh, as well as from uh, Rhodesia, from many, many countries uh, have come together uh, out of this interest, and of course throughout the United States, and, and we, we find that this uh, shared uh, international uh, learning environment is just wonderfully enriching. Uh, kids are kids all over the world, and, uh, and, and teachers are teachers all over the world, and we share this common set of goals and problems that we can solve together. So this has been a very important thing. And I will say that we also have at the Academy a, a similar certificate program for school leaders. Because as I was talking about earlier, the task of creating a welcoming, positive school culture and climate 
uh, a school of social and emotional competence and character is not something that many educational leaders are trained to do. So that is a separate, though related skill area, skill set. And so it has its own separate certificate, one for direct instruction in social, emotional, and character development, and one for building a whole school climate in social, emotional, and character development. We feel that uh, without that kind of support, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're, we're making pronouncements to teachers, but then not helping them to walk the talk. And we want people to be able to walk the talk and then once people get their certificate, they become part of a virtual professional learning community uh, that gives them ongoing support in carrying out the work. That's crucial because, um, you know, you get the certificate online, you have live chats, you work on it, it takes you about a year to do, then you go into your school, maybe your school doesn't have supportive folks for you, um, it doesn't matter virtual professional learning community will be there to support your continued work. That's a big issue that we're, uh, that we're focusing on right now. That sounds fantastic. And it sounds very similar to a lot of the work Kai is doing as well on trying to pull together communities. So um, we'll definitely put up all the links and resources in the show notes on the website um, for people to access. Um, Maurice, thank you so much. It was such a privilege and honor to be able to speak with you. So much, so many useful and practical pieces of advice. Was there a last message or a thing that you wanted to kind of communicate to our listeners before we wrap up? No, I, 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 I really uh, greatly enjoy the ability to communicate and follow up is the key. Um, uh, our work, uh, our Rutgers uh, University Social, Emotional, and Character Development Lab is at www.secdlab.org. Uh, you can contact us at the lab in addition to seeing what we're doing. And, uh, and we would invite you to uh, invite any listeners to ask questions or ask for resources. There are resources there that are downloadable. Um, and then, of course, the Academy uh, um, uh, website um, it's another important set of uh, not only uh, course information, but also there are a number of resources there that people can just go to uh, and, and download. So, um, you know, for us, the, the key is creating a wider community of support for this work. And, and so, by the way, if there are uh, any other links or materials that I can, I can provide, you know, let me know and we can send them along to you. That sounds excellent. Um, I'm sure people are really um, eager to learn more about this. Uh, Maurice, thank you so much. We really appreciate this and we do hope we could keep in touch and perhaps even speak again about other things you're working on in the future. It would be a great pleasure. Thank, thank you, you Maurice. so much. Take care. That was our interview with Professor Morris Elias. Department of Psychology at the Rutgers School of Arts and Science in Piscataway, New Jersey. Thank you to Morris for volunteering to share his wisdom and experience. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting www.tipbs.com. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thanks for listening. See you next time.